Now on Documentary on News Talk, producer Brian Kenny explores the history, heritage and global influence of Irish whisky in Ishkabaha, Water of Life. Whisky, Ishkabaha, the water of life. Whether you drink it or not, there's no denying its history with Ireland goes back a long way. It's more than just a drink, and at one stage Irish whisky was the biggest in the world, sought after on every continent, until it all came crashing down. Scotch became the dominant whisky, while Japanese and American brands established themselves internationally. Until recently, Irish whisky was dormant. This is a story about all that has changed. The rise and fall of Irish whisky, the water of life. Uh, William Lavelle, head of the Irish Whisky Association. Irish whisky has always been there, and that Irish whisky is the oldest of whiskies. Ireland is home of whisky, and also the place where whisky got its name. You can go back to the Red Book of Ossery, which was written in Kilkenny, I think, 1364, uh, and you'll see the first the first written references to distillation happening. And back then, it was obviously distilled by monks. It was called aqua vitae in Latin, what we know as the water of life, in Irish ishkabaha, which of course became anglicised as whisky. So Ireland is both the home of whisky production and the home of the name whisky. It is, it is unfortunately been a chequered history. Um, you go back to the 1800s and you know, Ireland, even Dublin, was the global powerhouse of whisky production. 70% of all the whisky sold in the United States at the end of the 19th century was coming from Dublin. Um, we had the world's largest distilleries, you know, the Golden Triangle of Jemison, Powers, George Rowe, uh, famous distilleries. And then, of course, early part of the 20th century, it all fell, it all fell away. And you come to the 1980s, the industry was on its knees. There was only two distilleries left, one in the very north of the island, and Bushmills, one of the very south in Middleton, and nothing in between. Considering we had hundreds of distilleries scattered in towns and parishes all over Ireland, and it was just barren, two distilleries. You come forward to 2010, we were still only at four distilleries. But then from 2010 onwards, we had you know a revival, a renaissance of Irish whisky. In that decade, we've gone from four distilleries to 39. Our sales have grown 140% from just under 5 million cases to hitting 12 million cases in the 12 months just before the onset of, of COVID. That was a phenomenal transformation. We honestly believe that Irish sales of Irish whiskey in the United States will overtake Scotch in the next decade. But other than that, it's really not about market share or it's not about market position. It's about, now it's about ensuring that we're going to be here for the long run. It's Willie O'Hearn, the Palace Bar, 21 Fleet Street. Well, you can go back, you can go back to, you know, the 1930s, 40s, where, you know, whiskey would have come in in a cask, basically, and you would have had a porter, you would have had your, most houses would have had their own brand of whiskey. Uh, and it would have been all bottles of stout and a small one back in those days. My grandfather would have bought here in the 40s, so the 40s, 50s, 60s, my father was young. Uh, things started to change in the early 70s, own private labels stopped with bars and and probably it came to the stage where we probably, when I kind of came on board back working here full time in 2001, we probably had more scotch on the shelf. It kind of 
took one day a trip down to the Kilbegan Distillery and a talk by John Cashman. It opened my eyes about the history of Irish whiskey. And let me relieve in Kilbegan that day uh, and coming back. And I remember maybe a couple of months later going to a rugby international in Scotland and going to a few lovely little old bars and you walk in and you could see 300 different scotches on the shelf. And I thought it looked class for starters. And I was kind of coming back to the palace here at Fleet Street and I was looking at it and we had about 30 or 40 scotches on the shelf and six Irish whiskies on the shelf. And I made it my business then to, to reverse that. So any brands of whiskey I could get, I'd support. And we just said, right, I want to try and be the kind of a driving force for Irish whiskey from a pub perspective. To the extent now where we probably have 350 Irish whiskies on our shelves and we've had our own, we've, we're the first house since the early 70s to revive the tradition of being a whiskey bonder again, having our own brand again. It's very exciting. Like, you can't keep up with it, to be honest with you. There's, there's new, new, new good news and, you know, interesting news on the whiskey front every fortnight. Like, there's something happening, like, you know. The stories I'm hearing about how big Irish whiskey was and its dramatic fall from grace raise so many questions. But before finding out what caused this fall, I headed to Middleton Distillery to meet Irish distillers archivist Carol Quinn and learn just how big Irish whiskey was globally. My name is Carol Quinn and I'm the archivist for Irish Distillers and I'm based here at Old Middleton Distillery and we're surrounded now by the beautiful cut stone buildings that were put here in 1825 by the Murphy Brothers of Cork who built Middleton Distillery and it was in operation continually up until 1975 when New Middleton was built. And it's not just the jobs of course which were vital, I mean there were generations of families dependent for their income on, on an employer like a distillery but it's also uh, the livelihoods of farmers. All of a sudden, they didn't have an outlet for their grain and they might have moved to, I suppose, change to animal husbandry or dairy. But now, with the resurgence, a great thing to see is that Irish farmers becoming engaged with the industry and talking about the different barley types and the varietals and really, you know, wanting to work hand in hand with the distillers, which is a wonderful way to operate. Well, here we are in the reading room of the archive at Irish Distillers. And this is where I take out items from the archive to show them to visitors, very often our brand teams, our marketing teams, and as you'll see, our legal team all use the archive. This is a excise receipt book from one of the Cork distilleries. This is from a place called the Watercourse Distillery. And this is just a random date. So it's the 24th of November, 1797. And in that month, they are paying an excise duty, 783 pounds sterling, 15 shillings. That's just the tax they're paying in a month. That's a couple of hundred thousand in today's money. And that's just the tax. That isn't the profit, that isn't what they're sold. And that's one month. I've skipped forward here. It's April, 1804. They're paying over 3,000 pounds sterling in tax per month. Irish whiskey is booming. So what we're looking at here, this is a book belonged to the guy whose job it was to print up labels for powers. So he kept a label book with an example of all the different types of labels so that if he needed them, off he popped to the printers. And we keep it today because happily he wrote in, in all these labels, where they were being sold. And he added in these beautiful little show cards, they're little advertising booklets. They're very small, um, they're just about 
three inches long and they're done in this beautiful vibrant colours with an image of the Johns Lane distillery front and centre. So this one is going to Bordeaux. These are all about 1900 now, 1905. This is going to Cape Town. This is going to Bombay. This one is going to Porto in Portugal. For some reason I love that. I love the fact that they're selling Irish whiskey in Porto. Frankfurt. This is another favourite of mine. Alexandria and Cairo. Wow. So you're in Cairo in 1905. You have no problem getting a glass of Irish whiskey. No problem whatsoever. It is a worldwide drink. And it's also a premium and a prestige drink. And that's something I think that has been lost a little bit in the history. It's not being sold at local Irish bars, I'm afraid. It is a prestige, prestige premium drink. If you're the type of person around 1900 who enjoys fine cognacs and fine champagnes, you drink Irish whiskey. That's who it's been sold to. And it is, I think, to the great credit of Ireland that it's one of those categories that was renowned for quality the world over. Yeah, hi, so I'm Tommy Byrne. I'm the uh, International Whiskey Ambassador uh, for Irish Distillers and I'm a tutor at the Irish Whiskey Academy here at Middleton Distillery. So we're now in the, the malt house of the old distillery here in Middleton. So I suppose go kind of right back to your kind of quintessential Irish style of whiskey is called single pot still. For a single pot still whiskey, essentially we use two grains. So we use barley in its unmalted form and in its malted form. The malted barley essentially is, is produced inside here. So this is where we convert barley into malted barley. So basically we would soak barley in water for about two days. We then um, lay it across the, the floor uh, above us here on the ceiling. Uh, and just let it germinate, just let it grow for kind of four, four and a half days. And that creates all these sugars inside the grain. And then the key stage is you want to dry it out. Here we need to mill them. It's, it's modernized in the sense that it's, you know, it's high tech and it's green, but it's still at the root of it. It's the same processes that have been done for 200 years, you know, which is, which is great. Um, and then this being the, the next one. So this is your mashing stage. So imagine we have our, our grist now. We have the grist of the, the barley and the malted barley. This is where we mix them inside this vessel, which is called a mashed ton. Add in hot water here. And what we're doing is just stirring it up. And the idea is all the sugars from the grain are going to be released and they're going to be absorbed by the water. So we're trying to extract those essentially. So essentially we have our rich sugary water. It's going to go into these tanks. These are called washbacks. And in there we add yeast. What it does for us is it's going to convert about half of that sugar into alcohol. We're now going to bring that to the next stage distillation. So these pieces of equipment are called pot stills yet. So for like the basic still design really hasn't changed a lot. I mean, it's, it's, it's grown in scale, but really you're talking about the, the kind of big wide base you can imagine like a kettle funneling up into you know a slightly narrower neck and the idea is you heat the liquid at the base eventually you're going to cause evaporation and the vapors rise up and you, and you collect them down through the the line arm so so after one distillation in the first still we go from 10 percent alcohol beer starting off to anywhere from 25 to 40 percent alcohol that's called low wines put those into the second still repeat that process so you're heating it up getting the evaporation and, and condensing the vapors so after, after the second distillation, about 70% alcohol, that's called strong faints. They then go into the third still, repeat the process once more. At the end of that, you have your spirit at about 84% alcohol. Never sell the spirit at this stage to the consumer, but this is how your whiskey starts off life, essentially. So you can probably notice the, the aromas are improving here a bit. Yeah, this is yeah. a, we're into the wood side of things now. As I said, probably 60 or 70% of the flavor of a whiskey will come from the wood. So this is obviously don't have to use an oak cask in Ireland. We have that freedom to kind of experiment with, with the non-oak casks. But saying that, 
99% of the time it's oak because that's the, the kind of worldwide standard for whiskey. You've got all those reactions. It's going to take on color from the cask. It's going to take on the flavor. or going to lose a little bit through the, through the evaporation. So you can see as time goes on, it's going to start to absorb essentially the, the color. So like the tannin in the wood will be absorbed by the liquid. The flavors, so like these are bourbon barrels. So again, you're talking about your kind of vanilla, kind of caramel sweetness. Yeah, so the last stage, so the spirits have gone into the cask. So we say we might have, say, grain whiskey in a bourbon barrel and we'll have our pot still whiskey in a, a sherry cask, say. And then the final stage then is for the blenders to mix those um, to, to get the flavor, of, you know, consistent each time. Dreamed a dream by the old canal. I kiss my girl by the factory wall. Dirty old town, dirty old town. Clouds are drift. In order to understand the demise of Irish whiskey, it's important to understand the kind of whisky Ireland was producing at its peak. And alongside that, the whisky that the Scottish, who would rise as the Irish industry fell, was producing also. The whisky Irish distillers were producing at the height of their powers was something unique, pot still whisky. Something whisky historian Fiona O'Connor explains to me, as well as highlighting the major factors involved in the decline of the once global brand of Irish whisky. Well, here we are in uh, in the office, looking out at the uh, the skyline of Dublin, and you can see there's the old Jemison chimney sticking up. There's the, the Guinness ones everyone knows. But again, originally that that area around Guinness uh, would have had major distilleries in the same kind of industrial mould as as Guinness itself. So Powers Distillery, which is now the the National College of Art and Design, Rose Distillery, which ran right from Thomas Street down to the river carried a huge amount of just physical landmass, and then behind them, Marabone Lane Distillery. So again, a, a real kind of powerhouse of gargle back in the day, of which Guinness was only a part. Um, and a lot of that revolved around Dublin pot still whiskey, uh, which at its time and at its peak was not only an industrial force, but was certainly presented as kind of the, the premier form of, of whiskey by many people on the planet. Uh, and they certainly thought of themselves in that in that light. They were all producing a kind of whiskey that, up until relatively recently, uh, didn't see a lot of press time in Irish whiskey advertising. But back in their day, was was really the heart and soul and the guts and the liver and the brain of Irish whiskey. And when we look back at those drinks, and and from the kind of Victorian era of the the big Dublin Four up until the say the nineteen sixties, that would have been what Irish whiskey for many people essentially was, you know, outside of um, some of the northern distilleries, and it collapsed as a drink just as the industry itself collapsed, and when the industry kind of pulled itself together it had to reinvent itself in a blended, lighter incarnation that could appeal to young drinkers, that could appeal to global audiences. And from the 90s onwards, we got Irish whiskey in its kind of second life, which was smoother, lighter, unpeated, alternative to Scotch whiskey. In Scotland, you started getting big branded whiskies, And I think that's a big part of the early 20th century in general. People moved from artisanal products to brands, to, you know, a Johnny Walker will taste like Johnny Walker, whether you're drinking it in Hong Kong or New York. And 
advertising is tied up with that and scale is tied up with that and reliability is tied up with that. And for these kind of great Dublin distillers, it was all about old houses. They were getting, you know, Harry Clark to do the advertising and talking about the, the great family of Jemison. And, you know, everything was about old proprietary processes and provenance. And they were always worried that somebody was blending away their stuff and mis misrepresenting them. It's a totally different kind of, of world. And I don't think they caught the zeitgeist, the zeitgeist of, uh, of where commercial middle-class consumption was, was headed. And all of that is happening in the background. And then you get the familiar, you know, forces. That's the kind of complicated history. And then you get the simple answers, which would be like prohibition and the economic war and, well, the, the whole process from the War of Independence right through the economic war, limited market, all of that happening in a kind of a perfect storm. But there's also that kind of subtler history going on. And for one reason or another, or another, you know, the Irish distillers start to drop from about, say, 30 to about, you know, three, eventually two, uh, where you just get Middleton, which was a consolidation of Jemison Powers and Old Middleton, Cork distillers, and Bushmills. The 1970s, when the glory days of Irish whisky were well and truly finished, few, if any, would have wanted to get involved in the business. John Teeling, however, saw an opportunity in the American market. So I was a, a student in the States and I, was, I had to do case studies. I'd been a student for a long time. I was academic. I was, I was back doing a doctorate. And I had to do two case studies. Uh, a fellow called Harry Hansen suggested that he loved Irish whiskey and it was hard to find. It had fallen from, as I found out when I looked at it, 60% of all the whiskey in the whole world to 2% of scotch. But I was looking at marketing of Irish whiskey in the States and it was a disaster. We were selling about 280,000 cases of whisk Irish whiskey in the States at that time and 14 million cases of scotch in 1970. And it hadn't grown. And Irish whiskey was um, an Irish coffee drink. So I did a second study, a case study, which was what happened? We had 60% of the industry, and a fellow called Anais Coffee produced a refined technology, which he patented in 1830, to produce whiskey in a different way, in a column. Now, and the second thing is, you use cheaper ingredients. Now, there was no definition of whiskey anywhere in the world at this time, in the 1830s, none. Uh, so there was only whiskey, no EY. And um, they used grain, unmalted barley, they used uh, maize, but it was significantly cheaper uh, to make. Uh, and you could get economies of scale. And the Irish guys said, by the big Dublin distillers, they said, that's not whiskey, that's not whiskey. I mean, that's called a silent spirit because there's nothing in it, it has no flavor. They wouldn't adapt the technology. And what happened? The Scots did, because the Scots were a cottage industry at that time. Scotland wasn't get together. They started to innovate by putting in columns. Now, Irish whiskey was all over the world at this stage, huge markets. Um, it followed the emigrants. The, uh, the Scots decided, the Scottish Trust, the Stillers Trust, came into Ireland about 1900 and started to buy up companies and close them down, get rid of the competition. The, the Ryans who had powers, the Jemisons and Rowe and Co., the Rows were still there. Um, they were very much involved with the Guinnesses. These guys weren't, weren't moving. By 1901, the die was cast, we were gone. So um, it continued to atrophy the Second World War, you couldn't import or export. Prohibition ruined that market. The Irish government destroyed export markets, so there was almost none. So after the war... Meanwhile, Scotch is picking up. 
all the time it was growing and scotch benefited from the fact that the american servicemen in england drank whiskey and it was cheap they had money they drank scotch didn't drink courage uh, it was easier, easier to drink scotch was always easier to drink uh, uh, because it was blended so i looked at this as the second case study and i was in a pub i was in a pub called the plowing stars in mass avenue and another irish guy was at mit i was at harvard at the time we used to meet there occasionally I said to him, I remember distinctly saying, you know, I'm going to build a distillery. This is ridiculous. I'm going to break this monopoly. Just ridiculous. There's an opportunity there. Um, a minor problem, I was a student. I was broke. I was an old student. I was 20, 25. And I was married. Kind of difficult to set up a distillery at that stage. But I never lost track of it. Back at Middleton, Carol Quinn tells me how the last remaining distilleries in Ireland pulled together in an attempt to save the extinction of Irish whiskey. So what you have is distillery after distillery closing. They just can't keep going. They slowly, slowly wind down. The buildings start crumbling. They stop buying in the barley. They're selling off old stock all over the country and they close. And it gets to the point in the 1960s that in the Republic of Ireland, there's only three distilleries left open. And that's John Jameson and Son in Bow Street in Dublin, John Power and Son in John's Lane in Dublin, and down here the Cork Distilleries Company who are running Middleton Distillery. That's it. There's nobody else making whiskey. And they're in competition with each other now. And they realise they're going to wipe each other out. And they're going to wipe out the category. They're going to wipe out the knowledge, the history, the tradition, and the memory, the actual memory of this wonderful drink. Now, they're all still run by the original founding families and they're known to each other. So they come together and it's actually Frank O'Reilly of Powers. He was a direct descendant of James Power, the founder there. He, he was the honest broker, we'll say, in all of this. And he facilitated the three coming together. But under the guise of country house weekends, they would meet in the home of Shane Jemison, and that was in Turin House in County Waterford, and they'd pretend they're going away for a nice social weekend. They'd sit down in the dining room and they'd thresh it out. And out of that came the most radical thing to happen Irish whiskey, is that these three firms merged. So in 1966, the three historic firms come together to form Irish distillers with the set aim of actually saving the Irish whiskey category. Not creating the best company in the world, not doing world domination, actually saving the knowledge of the process of how you make Irish whiskey. And the vision at the time was that they would hold it together long enough and through combining all their assets, create the situation where it was time again for other distilleries to be able to open. The historic merger of the big whiskey families consolidated a lot of resources and put them into a place which would allow their eventual buyout by drinks giant Perno Ricard, who decided to temporarily put pot steel whiskey aside and push Jameson, a lighter, blended whiskey. Whilst this was all happening, John Teeling hadn't forgotten about the opportunity he had seen previously. And having now established himself as a businessman, he decided to start his own distillery, Cooley Distillers, which would eventually go on to make Kilbegan, Tyrconnell and many more iconic Irish brands. There, was a, there were four Irish alcohol plants where they, where they took local bad potatoes and turned it into alcohol, which was forced to put into petrol. Don't you know that? They were called Chemiki Chorunda. Um, they were columns. There was one in Cooley, there were two in Donegal, and one in Mayo or Sligo. Uh, we were, I bought this thing for nothing. I bought Cooley for £106,000. Now, I wanted to make malt whiskey. I didn't believe in pot still, as I told you. So we set it up, said nothing, 
as far as the world was concerned, our distillers and everybody else was concerned, we were going to make white spirits. We used the columns to make uh, either vodka or something like that. Then, oh yeah, it was only to make whiskey. It was, it was only purely to make whiskey. So I raised two and a half million, bought it at the end of 86, um, started to produce in Easter Sunday, 1989. Nothing really changed till about 2000. And um, I'll tell you one story which has always stuck in my mind, a place called Binney's in Chicago, which was the biggest American outlet for, uh, it's fabulous now, for, for liquor. And I went there and he was keen to have something. So he brought me out, brought me down and there was a whole aisle of scotch. Maybe he might have had 500 brands of scotch. At the very end, there was a bottle of Tullamore and a bottle of Bushmills and that's all, there was no category. So what, what, did, what did we do? We created a category. Forget everything else. And I remember the, the American market, now Jamison was really, it was a, a bulk supplier, it wasn't a big brand. It was Bushmills and Tullamore Jewel, made up maybe 80% of Irish whiskey sales in the States. So in the year 2000, it was about 360,000 as against 280,000 when I looked at it in 1970. But then in 2000, young Americans got sick and tired of vodka and really beer and wine and started to drink brown spirits. They started to drink bourbon. Didn't like blended scotch because it's, it's bitter, slightly bitter. They like sweetness. Your Cheerios, your Coca-Cola, your milkshakes. Wow, yeah. They have a sweet taste. Young people in the States, who drinks Irish whiskey now? 22 to 39. Wow, in America? Worldwide. Wow. Because it's gone worldwide. Uh, but now slow. It took a long time. Ireland was one of the last to change it. So now if you go to anywhere in the States, there are now 500 brands of Irish whiskey in the States. So we ended up changing strategy. We, we, we did own label and we had to change very fast because I had a load of whiskey. At one stage I had 56 years of whiskey in barrels, that's not clever. So we went and we started to go for own label in the UK. We were much bigger in own label in the UK than anybody is now. So if you went into any, the Tesco's, Sainsbury's, Marks and Spencer's, all the Irish whiskies were ours. Uh, so any, I, I tell the story, any Irish brand you don't recognize was made by either Cooley or now by, uh, by Great Northern. With Irish whiskey starting to take off on the east coast of America, it began a new era where Irish whiskey began to flourish. On the back of this interest, the unique Irish brand of pot still has been resurrected and has gone on to become an international success, with brands such as Redbreast or the Spot Series taking centre stage. John Teeling built up his Cooley distilleries and sold it on to Jim Beam before investing in Great Northern distilleries to create whiskey for other brands. Having grown rapidly and established itself as the world leading whiskey brand, the Scottish industry has flourished. And alongside their household names, they've managed to develop a tourist industry through the cooperation of distilleries across their whiskey regions. Is this something Irish whiskey could mimic? I headed to Speyside, one of Scotland's foremost whiskey regions, and checked into the Craigalesh Whiskey Hotel, where one of the most famous whiskey bars is located, right in the heart of Speyside. Welcome to the Quake, I'm Kev. So we've got uh, a good big selection of whiskey for you here. They're all set out in the different regions along the wall. How high is that? You see you have a ladder just oh, to get up. Oh, it's about uh, 12 feet the top shelf is there. Oh yeah, they've got the wee ladder there. That I've not found it off this week yet. No far enough at this week, so that's a boost. And in the corner here, we've got some of our international whiskies. We've got some bourbons, some Irish whiskey, um, Taiwanese, etc. Blends over in that corner. But yeah, have a file for have a few bottles here. We've got a. Uh, Loads of different needs from different cask types as well. You've got sherry casks, bourbon casks, ports, 
Madeira, red wine, white wine, um, everything. If it's, if it's been matured in oak, there's a, likely there's a whiskey here that's been in it after it. There's always that snobbery about whiskey and everything, but a lot more younger people are getting into it, and that snobbery is starting to die off. And especially now, especially after the lockdown and everything, there's been a whole new demographic of folk. You can see the enthusiasm in them, and it's brilliant. It's really good, really good. And it's not just Scotch whiskey. We'll start speaking about bourbon, um, Asian whiskies, Irish whiskies, blends, everything, you know, so it's really, really good. Lots of things affect the flavour. The weather, the, your mood, you know, the temperature of the whiskey, that's why they say you keep had it in your hand to warm it up. And they say it's an ideal temperature. But at the end of the day, you drink your whiskey how you want to drink it. You never let nobody tell you how to drink your whiskey. You never let folk tell you how to drink your coffee or your tea, you know. If you have ice in it, you can have ice in it, water on you go. You want a Coca-Cola? <laughs> I might scream my face up at you, but I'll give you your Coca-Cola and on you go. You, you knock yourself out. It's your whiskey. You drink it how you enjoy drinking it. I think because of the massive selection of Scotch whiskey and the like the dominance of the Scotch whiskey again going back to the 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 big uh, companies and their marketing the Scotch whiskey it's what's made it so massive. <laughs> That's maybe what the Irish whiskey was missing at the time. But the amount of people who, you know, myself included, a bit ignorant of the Irish whiskey, I'm starting to get into it, but a lot more in discovering that there's some good drums out there. Central to whisky production are the casks, and Speyside has its own cooperage, which is also open to tourists on their whisky trail. Hey, good morning. Uh, we're here at Speyside Cooperage in Craig Elkey, uh, in the heart of the Malt Whisky Trail. And my name is Andrew Russell. Uh, I'm currently the, the general manager for Speyside Cooperage Limited. Cooperage, uh, cooperages now, especially in Scotland, are generally and the biggest part of the business is the repair and what we call rejuvenation of casks that are in the industry. Uh, these casks generally come in as used bourbon bottles from the United States and Scotch, Irish, rum, uh, Japanese whiskey, lots of other whiskies are generally built on the back of their whiskies maturing in ex-bourbon or Tennessee whiskey casks. Now, they'll go through uh, maybe several cycles of maturation, whether it be in Scotland or Ireland, three to four, and then they'll be, they'll be, they'll be checked over, and it may be that uh, they're, not, they're almost dead for maturation purposes, or they have defects in it. And generally, that's what happens with the Scottish cooperages these days. These casks will be passed to us. We'll repair the defect or brush off the char, and then rechart it so that it'll maybe be good for another one to two maturation cycles. So basically we, what we're doing is we're extending the life of, of the bottle. Speyside Cooperage Limited uh, has been in business since 1947. The Cooperage is an integral part of uh, the whiskey industry. Uh, I, I mean, I know that the distillers will probably argue with me, but uh, we, we always believe that the, the cask itself will generally, in general terms, provide 70% or more of the colour of flavour. My final port of call in Speyside was to visit one of its many internationally known distilleries, Glen Murray. 
Uh, so my name's Ian Allen. I am the Visitor Centre Manager and Global Brand Ambassador for Glenmurray Distillery. Um, we're sitting in Glenmurray House, our tasting lounge, uh, situated in the heart of Speyside in the town of Elgin. Yeah, so Speyside is you know one of the smallest areas within the whisky uh, country of Scotland uh, geographically, uh, but as far as, as volume output for single malt whisky, we, we have just a little under half of Scotland's 130 odd distilleries working from here with some of the most iconic brands, uh, the most famous brands, Glen Murray being one of them. Well, well, Speyside in, in Murray is, is known as the, the granary of Scotland. You have wonderful fertile lands for growing the, the barley required for making your single malt whisky. Uh, also coming off the hills and the mountaintops, you had the fresh water coming down. So you basically had little farms opening up and, and having all the, the tools and ingredients at their disposal right next to them to make whisky. And that scaling up, I think, that the Scotch ado- the, the Scots adopted uh, was really kind of key to the, the, the ability to push out to a much more global market rather than keeping it at such small, uh, small-scale pot stills. You know, the adoption of the kind of column stills within uh, recreation of grain whiskey, which is the, the backbone to all our famous blends, your Johnny Walkers, your Shivers Regals, all these. They needed that kind of volume production to be able to, to scale up. Can you go further? That's the question that everybody's asking you know everybody is scaling up at the moment you know we are expanding we've, we've sorry we have expanded our distillery uh, in the past four years uh, from three million to six million liters so we've doubled our production volume uh, and that 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 global reach of, of scotch allows brands like ourselves to push into the category and push out into these markets um and i'm sure a lot of these bigger companies would love to you know centralize everything to a more kind of convenient location uh rather rather than up in the hills in the middle of nowhere where things can be challenging and more expensive to produce. But they're not allowed to do that. And then that's what's allowed this, um, that authenticity and that kind of um, kind of real kind of uh, product being produced from a home where it's been produced for hundreds of years. You know, the Malt Whiskey Trail is a great example of it. You know, a kind of cooperative of different distilleries, different companies uh, to promote the Murray area and the Speyside region. And we know that if, if that's healthy and if that's, flourishing with regards to tourism people will come to the distillery they will um, you know have spend some time with your products and we give we get the opportunity to talk them through how we make it and allow them to taste it and enjoy it in the brand home because there's no better place you know and I'm sure you know drinking a pint of Guinness in, in Ireland is the best place to do it like drinking a scotch whiskey at the distilleries I, I still think there is no better place to enjoy a whiskey There is no question that the last 20 years has seen a boom in Irish whisky, but I wanted to hear from people on the ground about just how much has changed. My name is Sergius Florides. I'm based in Dublin. I run Irish Whisky Magazine, and I've run that since uh, 2016, the end of 2016. You know, when you, when you drink whisky, you're not just drinking liquid. You know, you are consuming history in a way. You're consuming time, and um, you know you're you're taking part of history and creating memories for the future and sharing them with people. Hopefully, but you're celebrating Ireland, I think, um, not just the whiskey itself. You know, it's deeper than that. You know, we have this series called Seven of Sips, which is done in conjunction with Pionan O'Connor, who's a whiskey historian, and he's the one that's unearthed a lot of this. Uh, 
a lot of these historic recipes and he knows a lot about the history of Irish whiskey and he uh, he writes the Seven Sips series and it, it takes a, an aspect of Irish whiskey through the history and you know we're talking about the columns still now in the latest issue uh, so there were different phases and then Eric Ryan has done you know whiskey in relation to 1916 rising what happened how, what role the distilleries played where the battles took place part in that um, and then you talk to you talk to um, publicans as well whose lives are around whiskey or you talk about distillers and new distilleries opening you know so just some some fascinating stories the tourism side of Irish whiskey we've had some great articles on that over a third of the sales are in America and the rest you know about 25% are in Ireland and the rest are abroad so it does have a a huge interest and the interest abroad is is growing you know we're starting to see Eastern Europe South America and Asia really start to take off Hi I'm Al Higgins I'm from the Celtic Whiskey Shop we're on Dawson Street in Dublin Uh, we've been here since 2003 and I've been here since then as well so part of the furniture yeah well we're in the whiskey room here and we've got some of the really fancy ones behind glass and other ones that you can just grab a bottle of and and put on the counter Um, but our shelves have actually grown with Irish whiskey growing as well so you can see the shelves go right the way up to the top of the the shop they they never used to go all that way up Um, but as time went on we needed more and more space to fill all the brands and all the different whiskies that were coming out Um, so if there's a whiskey and it's Irish and it's not in here then it doesn't you know if we don't have it it doesn't exist we've always had the whiskey enthusiasts coming in here we've always had the tourists coming in um but maybe now there are more irish people really into whiskey and really wanting to learn about whiskey in general not just irish whiskey but whiskeys from around the world um you still do find that we used to get this a lot in the early days and less so now that we'd have whiskey enthusiasts whose own reference point is single malt scotch or bourbon whiskey from america and they don't really know about irish whiskey um we've seen that nowadays they are learning a bit more about irish whiskey but they might come in and and ask for an irish single malt whiskey um which is great but ireland has its own styles of whiskey that we encourage people to try um alongside the single malts irish has single pot still um which is the country's trump card is is what we have as our selling point so we always encourage people to to look at single pot still as a, as a way of getting into irish whiskey amidst the buoyancy of irish whiskey new distilleries have popped up all over the country the bone distillery in drahada uses local produce similar to the scottish model we saw in Speyside. this family-owned business has had huge success with old pot still recipes sally ann and pat cooney told me more the distillery here is, we're located in the Platten Basin, so we have our own well, um, our own Boyne Valley water that we take on site here, and that's used for all our distillation on site, and also for cutting back our spirit for casking. We're very lucky as far as we have a large source, so we're not short of water, we can get all the other ingredients locally, so it is quite a remarkable industry as far as that all the ingredients are local, and 99% of our produce is exported. Well, I'm in the drinks business all my life and I've always had a great interest in Irish whiskey. And of course the history of Irish whiskey is more about pot still than it is about malt. So when we set about designing the distillery here, it really was to make pot still. Uh, and 
when we wanted to find out more about Potter Still, because we were interested, uh, we uh, made contact with Fionnán O'Connor, and for his PhD, he researched the lost mash bills of Ireland, I suppose. So he went the country, uh, and these, these were all secret mash bills, so they weren't freely available. So he researched them through the excise records, uh, through private records, through any records that was available to him. And he came up with 10 or 12 old mash bills belonged to about 10 different distilleries all over Ireland from different times, from 1800 right up until the 70s. Uh, so in December uh, 2019, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020 uh, we, dist we distilled all of those mash bills here, some of them with as much as 30% oats, very difficult to distill, very difficult to mash, and without the particular equipment we have here, would be nearly impossible to do it. But the results were amazing, quite extraordinary, how each mash bill had its own particular flavour, and now we've put them away, we'll test them every year to see how they're going, but so far, they're making really, really good progress. So we're very excited, we have the knowledge, we have now the experience, uh, and we're going to do quite a few more uh, old-style mash bills. It's very apt that, you know, like Ireland's or, or you know, Ireland's link to its whiskey history, history is a very, very tenuous one. And that link was very nearly lost. And, you know, thanks to Fiona and the research that he did, um, where we've been able to, I suppose, be part of the team that have helped to revive those recipes and bring them back to uh, bring them back into. Uh, into the light of day and it is very much I suppose talking to ghosts and you know very much um, looking back into that history and, uh, and and just getting a glimpse of you know of what Irish whiskey was in its heyday and it's it's very different to what Irish whiskey was you know 10 years ago Irish whiskey has changed hugely in the last 10 years and a lot of that is down to a lot of new blood in the industry and a lot of new people who, who really want to experiment and really want to you know move the category forward and, and make it a, more, a very, very interesting category In 2015 Jack and Stephen Teeling opened up the Teeling Whiskey Distillery in the heart of Dublin from where once Irish whiskey dominated the world market Their distillery is purpose built for tourism with a bar coffee shop and visitor centre all on site. Okay, so I'm Ian Wood, uh, Head of Operations for the Teeling Whiskey Company and we are uh, inside the, uh, our new distillery. Yeah, over here. Uh, so this is actual the working distillery, this is... Yeah, and so we, when we built it, we built it with visitors in mind, so we have this mezzanine level, so you can stand on the mezzanine and try and, and get see each part of the process as it happens and you're kind of taken round by our tour guides. Smells lovely. Yeah, Our, like again, Irish whiskey is, is having a renaissance. I think we are quite a big part of that. Um, I think we've been prepared to, to innovate. I mean, there's some, here's a good example, right? So the Scottish whiskey regulations only allow you to use uh, oak, so casks that are made from oak in, um, in maturation. Whereas the Irish regulations are, uh, allow you to use other woods, because you you're not just confined to oak. And that just brings a whole kind of potential world of, of new flavour you can use. And we've, we've you know, had, had a lot of success experimenting with different, with different woods. Everyone's trying to keep ahead, which makes for a really good competitive environment. And, and um, Irish whisky is a great product, so it's kind of selling well and performing well across the world. So. Irish whisky has been revived yet still has a long way to go to reclaim its former glory. The world has changed, but Irish whisky has adapted with new distilleries and brands opening up all the time. 
the future looks bright. Water of Life was produced and edited by Brian Kenny. The programme was funded by a grant from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland as part of the Sound and Vision Scheme.